0: hey everyone welcome to the who's training who podcast with ali and tom episode seven this podcast is all about animals we talk training behavior people doing cool things with and or for animals we hope that by listening to this podcast we can help you have a better relationship with your pet or any pet you meet. On today's episode, we talk with Jessica Dolce, founder of the Compassion and Balance Program. So let's get started. So welcome to the show, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. So how about you explain a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. So I am a compassion fatigue educator And I work specifically with people who work with animals. So, folks who work in animal shelters, veterinarians, dog trainers, animal control officers. Uh, And I've been doing that since 2014. But before that, and all through this, I've been working with animals as well, both as an animal shelter employee, a dog walker, and in animal welfare nonprofits. So, that's my background. And then I eventually transitioned into doing this work where I'm supporting the people who um, are really taking care of animals and their people.
0: So how did you transition into that?
1: Well, I had my own experience with compassion fatigue um, about 12 years ago or so when I was working full-time at my shelter. And I was also co-running um, a nonprofit that focused on um, pet owner resources for people who have pit bulls. So like free dog training classes and doing those two things at once probably not a big shocker that that uh, really took a toll on me. And uh, I, over the course of a few years, really changed. And I wasn't myself anymore. And I just assumed that something was wrong with me personally, that I wasn't strong enough or tough enough to do the work. And things got bad enough that I eventually left the shelter and left the group that I had helped to build. And that was so upsetting to leave something that I cared about so much um, that I really felt compelled to figure out where I had gone wrong. You know, what did I do that I should have done differently? How did I get myself here? And that's really when I stumbled on the concepts of compassion fatigue for the first time. And it was, you know, that moment where you realize you're not the only one. There's actual terminology for what you're experiencing. It's really common. And it was so like liberating to understand that it wasn't just me and there were actual strategies that I could use to both get well, but also to stay well if I wanted to continue to do the work. That first I took care of myself. I got, you know, my own house in order. And then once I was well, I really wanted to offer these tools to all of my friends who were still all of my friends work with animals. Uh, and I wanted them to have access, easy access and affordable access to this information. So in 2014, I launched my first online class. And you know, there was a training process that I went through to become a certified compassion fatigue educator. And I went back to school and I got my master's in adult education education and certificates and coaching. I did all of the work, the training work, but it was really in the very beginning, this attempt to bring these resources just to my friends and say, hey, I think we would all benefit if we knew about this. And it was such a big hit that over the course of a few years, it wound up becoming my full-time job uh, because the demand was so high.
0: Right. I, you know, volunteering at an open intake shelter, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that that's happened to me. And it, you know, now that you say lasting effects, maybe that's, you know, could be some of the issues that I have now is, you know, and having a dog that came from there and the issues that we have with her and struggle, like, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. So I'm kind of excited to continue talking. So what is compassion fatigue? So we know going forward, what are we talking about?
1: So there are a lot of different definitions of compassion fatigue, which is very frustrating um, because it creates a lot of confusion. What I think is important to know is that while there hasn't been a lot of consensus around the definition, there is no debate that compassion fatigue is real. It's just a terminology issue. And so the definition that I like because it really speaks to what this feels like is that it is the physical, spiritual mental they say emotional <laughs> spiritual all of them it's every it's every bit of your wellness every dimension of your wellness it's this really profound depletion that causes a decline in your ability and your desire and your energy to both feel caring and be caring for others so it is in the name it is the fatigue of your compassion maybe more accurately the fatigue of your empathy and it's not just for the animals or the people that you work with it's with you all the time so it's really it really affects your ability to um, have an empathetic connection with your family your pets even yourself this this erosion is pretty profound and so you don't get compassion fatigue because you know you don't care about animals you get it because at one time you cared very, very, very much. And this intense depletion that comes from essentially doing the work without being able to restore yourself, without being able to like refill your cup for the cliche, you know, over time, that leads to such a profound sense of depletion that you literally just don't feel caring anymore, which means you're not acting in a caring way. And so, you know, you see a lot of being very desensitized to other people and animals or feeling really numbed out. It's like having a wall between you and the animals or people in your care. And it makes sense in some ways. It's a protective strategy to some degree, Uh, even if it's not intentional that you're doing it. I think it comes from being so depleted and not being able to take in anymore. So you put up a pretty good wall. But unfortunately, that cuts you off from everything, both the things that you need to be in order to do your job well, We need to be empathetic and caring and, you know, helpful and hopeful in order to be good at our work. So we lose the ability to do our jobs really well, but also we just really lose out on life. With that wall being up, we're not able to have the same quality relationships with our loved ones or, you know, with our coworkers or our own pets. So it's a real lose-lose for us and those we're serving. And that's why it's really important that we look at you know, what can we do about it? Because everybody loses when we're experiencing
0: this. Right. And I think it's one of those things, at least in my experience with the volunteer work and working with with animals, I know I've, by the way you explained that, I definitely have experienced that, not just from volunteering, but even um, doing some, you know, dog walking and dog sitting I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just really empathetic. I just, I feel bad sometimes for the dogs and situations that they're in. It's not, you know, it's just whether they're not let out enough, whether they're not walked enough, whether, you know, the food that they're eating where you're just like, ah, like, how do you eat? You know, how can you do that? But especially in volunteering, you know, especially at an open intake shelter where you see, I know I haven't seen the worst of the worst, but I've seen some pretty bad stuff where you're just like, like, it's almost like hopelessness where you're just, you you don't know what to do because you can't save them all. You can't help them all you know, and...
1: No, it's a terrible feeling. I definitely right. have been there and feeling hopeless or helpless to make a difference. That is a classic symptom of compassion fatigue uh, that really comes usually over time. Like it doesn't typically happen overnight. You know, it's being exposed to all of those animals um, in need over time really can generate that sense of like, I, nothing I do makes a difference.
0: But I also feel like at least when I when I volunteered, there was kind of like a, if you showed that you were feeling stressed or burned out um, even when you were talking, I'm like, that kind of sounds like depression too, you know, like, like it's all like all triggered together. where there's this sense that like, you can't show that you are because there's this, and I maybe, maybe it's just was in my group and I need to find more groups, but you know, where it's just, people are like, Whoa, Hey, you're, you you don't care about animals. If you're, if you're, if if you can't deal with this, then, then, you know, then I'm better than you and I'm stronger than you. And it's, it it kind of makes you not even want to be there anymore because you're already feeling crappy. And then people next to you are making you feel even worse because you're struggling and you don't know how to deal with it. And, yeah. you know, it, and it's, it's And you're right. Who do you talk to about compassion fatigue? You know, yeah. when nobody else is talking about it, you know, what what do you do?
1: Yeah, and if you don't even have the words, which at the time when I was experiencing it, I didn't even know the term compassion fatigue. So it's not even like I could accurately describe what I was experiencing. So you're right. I just kind of walked around not feeling good. And there, you know, you brought up an important point that's probably worth addressing, which is, you know, is this the same as depression or an anxiety disorder? And uh, I'm not a therapist, but my my mother is. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom often comes into my classes to talk with my students around this kind of issue of like, wh- wh- when do we need to get You know, professional mental health help, what is the difference? And I know the way that she describes it is the symptoms of compassion fatigue and depression are very similar. And so it often is a matter of intensity, the degree, the duration that might indicate whether this is compassion fatigue versus, you know, clinical depression. The other thing that to keep in mind if folks are listening and wondering, like, is this me, is that compassion fatigue is really an umbrella term that we can use to talk about a very individual experience, meaning your symptoms of compassion fatigue can be different than mine. And we can both be experiencing compassion fatigue versus, you know, with clinical depression or an anxiety disorder, there's a checklist for, you know, a criteria that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed with that. Uh, And that's not, it's not quite that way with compassion fatigue. It's not a mental illness. It's not um, a disease. It's really a, a hazard of the job and it's a predictable one. And this is why it's a shame that we're not talking about it because it is a normal, predictable risk of showing up and being in an empathetic relationship with animals and people who are suffering or stressed or in need. And so if it's really more accurately understood as an occupational hazard. And if we think about it that way, it takes some of the shame out of, you know, our individual experience. It's not because we're weak or something is wrong with us. This is really a predictable outcome of doing the work. And most people will experience some version of this at some point in their career uh, or, you know, in their volunteer work. And so unfortunately what you experienced is what I think everyone experienced for many, many years. And it's changing now, but not fast enough. And that's the old, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen attitude, you know, suck it up. This is the way things are. You know, if you can't tough it out, then you're not cut out for this. And one that is just so harmful, because it's not, it's just not correct. Uh, But I think it's on a meta level it's really harmful because it drives good people away from volunteering or doing the work it's really this message of you can either martyr yourself and do the work cuz you are quote unquote the true you know lovers of animals or you know or just don't do it at all you can be one or the other you can Kill yourself doing the work, or you can not be involved at all. And what I would really love to see is for us to have a more accepting c- culture where we um, cheer people on for only volunteering a little bit each week or each month, or working part time, or leaving your full time job on time and having a life because that is what would keep all of us in the work for the long haul. And the animals need. All of us, uh, right? And then no one would need to martyr themselves <laughs> because there would be enough people remaining in the work that there it wouldn't have to fall on so few people. So it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Well, you can't take it, get out. Now it's just up to me. And then you know, woe is me. I'm the only one who's cut out for this work. So, you know, on a smaller level, I really love doing this work just to help individuals. But on a big level. I deeply would love to see a shift in animal culture, animal welfare care culture, where we really cheer each other on and validate each other's healthy choices with the understanding that doing a little less each day or each week means doing a lot more in the long term. This is about sustainability. How do we do this for our whole career? Not three years flame out. And then we go work in a bookstore for the rest of our lives because we can't be around animals anymore. So that's a long answer. But just to say that your experience is what I hear all the time. And it was my own experience. And I'd love to see a shift in our culture around
0: that. Yeah, I would love that too. Because I think that's one of the the reasons why I don't volunteer as much anymore is because of, uh, you know, and you know, and you bring up a point about feeling like the martyr. And it's like, why can't we just be all we're all about the animals? you know, why do we have to classify ourselves as I'm more, I know more about dogs than you, you don't know as much as me. So I'm better than you instead of trying to educate each other, instead of trying to, you know, it's, it's just a weird, you know, I thought when, you know, when I started volunteering with dog or with shelters and that it people would be more compassionate towards each other. And there just isn't like, they're like, we're compassionate for the dogs, but that's the only thing we have in common. Like, it's like, we don't know how to deal with each other. And like, we can't just, be about the dogs, like it has. There's still has to be an ego involved, and that that's one of the things that kind of bothers me about certain uh, organizations is that the egos are just a little bit um, bigger, you know, o- o- is overpowering than the actual caring about the dogs.
2: So that kind of brings up a topic of you know the the stress that we put on some of our owners um, coming into the shelters, you know, wanting to surrender their dogs, or you know, come to trainers and need help. Um, and, and, you know, just seeing a huge change in our society as a whole and being more accepting of people and experiencing that compassion fatigue, you know, that's something that people in shelters don't necessarily realize is that the owners are probably experiencing compassion fatigue. Most people don't just give up their dogs willy-nilly. They're not just like, oh, yep, thought about it for two seconds. It's a painful decision for most people they think about it for weeks or months and cry about it and you know experience all that emotional and spiritual trauma in making this decision and then they go to the shelter and you know people basically shun upon them and you know it's it's a huge shift that needs to happen in our industry you know and then we've got the volunteers at shelters that assume that passion is a credential for being able to make behavior decisions. And then they are, you know, blaming trainers for aiding or at least having the conversation of behavioral euthanasia with people or vets that have the conversation of behavioral euthanasia. And then we've got, you know, the volunteers who think that just because they met the dog in the shelter, they can just, you know, make horrible Social media blasts, or you know, just spread their name all around to people that adopt from them, and you know, it, it needs to change. It all needs to change because you know we need to help each other.
1: Communities that you just talked about, those groups are hurting, and so they are hurting other people because they aren't able to tolerate their own uh, pain, and they don't. They they are not yet able to heal themselves or take care of themselves or work through the really difficult and painful emotions that they're experiencing or their past history of trauma or whatever it is. And so this is a lot of people who are in pain, who are literally just pushing it on to somebody else. Uh, and so everything that you just described is happening, you know, in every community that I work with, um, those um, arguments or those hurt feelings or the bad behavior or the, social media bullying and you know just we're not we're not investing enough in our people like the staff members aren't getting enough support from their organizations the volunteers maybe aren't being trained enough or there aren't clear protocols about what's going to happen when there's a behavior euthanasia so i think we have a lot of hurt people without a lot of sk- coping skills and then we have systems that they are in that are not providing the kind of organizational level care and policies and practices that we need in order to um, hold everybody accountable to better, more compassionate, skilled behavior with each other. So it's both our individual responsibility to care for ourselves and heal our wounds and be well so that we don't just keep spreading the hurt around uh, to animals and people and then it is an organization's responsibility to look at what tools or practices or policies do we need to put into place so this you know doesn't keep happening every time there's a behavior euthanasia decision where you know volunteers quit and then go online and you know say horrible things about the shelter We we need help at the organizational, the leadership level as well. Uh, So, you know, if we could do it from both ends, that would probably be what would lead to real change. Um, But it's not, I think it's important to know it's not specific to any one person. Like, I know we all have someone in mind when we talk about these. So, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that person was really difficult. So it's not about like, you know, that one person or that one shelter. From my perspective, I'm talking to people every day literally around the world, and they're all having the exact same problems, which means it's something bigger, you know, than anybody's individual shortcomings or any particular organization. So I would love to see, you know, us look at it, you know, from this kind of wider lens of what's really going on here, if this is an issue everywhere we go.
0: There are people who are just a-holes that just are that kind of person, and you know, it has yeah. nothing to do with compassion fatigue. They're just, sure. <laughs> just mean people, you know, they're just, they, that's just what they are. And they're um, everywhere
1: in every right. industry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I can't get away from them.
0: <laughs> you know, I feel like when you talk, and I wasn't, I was totally not expecting this to go this way, but it feels like a therapy session. It feels like, I mean, I've been through, uh, uh, Elinon, uh, Elinon, right? Yeah. El- Elinon. Uh, how you say that? So I've been through that, and like, that was, that helped me out tremendously in my life for what I was going through at the time. And just hearing you talk just is like, wow, someone just knows what I've been thinking. And I, you know, like someone who actually understands the feelings I have, because there's no way I could talk about it with, I mean, well, now I have someone I can talk about it with, but before there was no one I could talk about it with and even like express like, Hey, I'm feeling this way before that fear of, of being, you know, being yelled at or being told that I'm, you know, not worthy of of working with animals. So we've been talking a lot about volunteers, but it's not just for volunteers that feel compassion fatigue. People who actually get paid to work with animals, like vets and vet techs and whatever else you can think of that work with animals, they can feel it too. And you know, vets I think are maybe the bigger people who get the most trash thrown at them because you know, because you're always like, Hey, I'm going to help your animal. And now it's like $500, $1,000 later. And you're like, well, wow, I don't have that much money, you know, but so, so what do do vets, vets, I assume feel the same thing we do, but they have different maybe factors that contribute to it. Or is it all the same?
1: Well, compassion fatigue is the same in terms of like the symptoms or the experience of it. What becomes a little different are some of the factors in the culture or the workplace. So for veterinarians who have the highest suicide rate of any medical profession, so they are, of all the people working with animals, um, really um, struggling uh, pretty profoundly at the moment. um, One of the factors that really contributes to their compassion fatigue is repeatedly being told that they don't care about animals because they are charging for their services. So, you know, from our perspective as a customer, we're really upset because we can't afford that $500 bill. But from the vet's perspective, we're the 10th person that day that has said to them, you are, you don't care about animals because if you did, you wouldn't make me pay this. And so this is, and I'm not kidding. I mean, I work with a lot of veterinarians. This is all day, every day for them, being told that they are heartless human beings for charging for their services. And you have to remember, they graduate with a huge amount of student loan debt. They have to buy all this equipment, pay a staff. It's very expensive to be a veterinarian. And so they have the same amount of student loan debt as a regular doctor for humans, but they cannot make the same amount of money as a human medical doctor. So they're in a real their business model has really put them in a bind. If everybody would go get pet insurance, we would be, this would really help with compassion fatigue for, for everybody. If we could get pet insurance um, uh, to be a little bit more common in, I'm not saying that's a cure-all, it just would be one way to address this major sticking point. Uh, and so they're, they're being yelled at and abused. Uh, and so are their vet techs and their front desk staff all day long being told that they are essentially monsters that don't care because they're asking for payment. And so most vets I know are doing volunteer work or doing sliding scale or doing a certain amount of free work, but there is a limit to how much you can do and still keep the lights on. And so their struggle that they're really dealing with as a community, or at least the folks I work with is, you know, how do we set boundaries around this issue? Or how do we set boundaries with work? Because we're already working six, seven days a week, you know, we're exhausted all the time. But no matter how much we do, it's never enough. We're never answering, you know, we're not answering Facebook messages from our second grade teacher about their cat, you know, who ate something funny and we're not, you know, good enough because we, um, you know, we're charging or whatever it is. So they're in a real bind right now of trying to figure out how to do this work in a way that is sustainable for them uh, and to set some boundaries around things that are very uncomfortable like finances. They are like all animal lovers. They would do it for free if they could, but they can't and afford all of the equipment (laughs) that they have in their, you know, labs, uh, clinics. So it's I know for them and the folks I work with, they're really struggling around that issue with the public. And then they just have, you know, in terms of their kind of more routine compassion fatigue you know, they're seeing many of their patients from birth to death. And that's, they have real relationships with the animals and people in their care. And it is a loss for them to be a part of all of these euthanasias. Again, it might be the one euthanasia we experience today, but it's their 10th, you know, in a row. uh, And it's uh, really hard. It takes a just like we love animals and it really weighs on us, it feels the same for them so there's a lot of um, there are a lot of issues uh, for them, and there 's not enough time to go into all of it, but right. I really have a lot of um, empathy for for them trying to figure out a way forward right now, it's really complicated. Because as a shelter worker, I didn't have any student loan debt. (laughs) So when it was time for me to walk away from the shelter, because I couldn't take it anymore, I just walked away and got another job. But for a vet, they're really financially in a bind that is very different from most other people who work in animal care uh, roles. And for that, I have a lot of um, empathy for, I think, the the rock and the hard place that they're often stuck
0: in. Right, and I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, think that vets are business owners that they're 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 kind of small business owners. Maybe they have four doctors with them, but they're still kind of small business owners. But all that stuff costs a lot of money. You still have to pay it back. You still have to, you know, yes, some vets are are gouging. There's, you know, just like a- anywhere somebody's always spending more than they have to. But it's just, you know, it, I think it goes back to people too, who always want, you know, everything for cheap and free, the Amazon effective stuff. And you know what, the vets don't have, you know, shareholders giving them money to do, to just keep spending and spending and spending to grow on a big scale. Like they're, they're trying to grow just on, you know, on, on what they have. And that's, and that's tough. And you're trying to run a business. You're trying to respond to people, you know, you have to hire people. And, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people know, how to hire people where sometimes you get good people that work well with you. And sometimes you have employees that aren't as good and you have to deal with that. Plus you have to do the vet stuff. You know, like it's a lot, it's a lot and to never do.
1: Taught that. I'll just say, like, if we're gonna really like, let's right. give it give it to the vets for a second here. Like, right. so I, I teach for the University of Florida, um, the College of Veterinary Medicine, and one of the things that's a real stressor for young veterinarians when they get out of school is like, no one teaches them anything about business, and so you know, all of a sudden they have to figure out the financials of running their business and how to be usually a good boss. Uh, and manage a lot of conflict uh, amongst the public and their staff or their staff amongst each other. And so these are just literal, like leadership skills that they're not taught because just like us, all they want to do is be with animals all the time. And so, you know, they're really, they're, they they really are not um, often given the tools that they need to do that part of their business well. And that becomes a massive stressor and which leads to burnout for a lot of them. And so burnout and compassion fatigue are a little different. Uh, but it's really that like intense stress that they're under all the time to manage the humans, the people, the business, that's a lot. And you know, the business model is changing for them as we get corporate, you know, veterinary teens um, are coming in, and that's changing things. So, you know, again, kind of to like, widen the lens. We're looking at a a bigger issue of like the business model is not working very well for them at the moment because we're all ordering online our medications and our food. We used to buy all that from the vet, you know, so their business model is in flux. And I think we're also seeing that one day it 'll move in whatever direction it 's going to go in, but we're we 're living through a change in how veterinarians make a living. It used to be much easier for them, less debt and more money coming in uh, because no one was buying online so we 'll see what happens, but it is both an individual issue and this bigger kind of wider lens meta issue of like how what's their business model in this day and age uh, and it's really complicated so if i could i guess if that was uh if that's what i could offer to everybody is like it is really complicated we all think we know but man everybody uh dog trainers shelter workers acos vets it, there's so many layers to this for every single profession and once you hear it, you can't unhear it. You see how hard everybody is struggling.
0: So, yeah, the more you talk, the more I realize that it's not just a simple, you can't just classify what compassion fatigue is. Like it just, it, it, you're right. There is no, it's just a broad term, I think, right now. But you did bring up an interesting point that I, I was, as you were talking, I'm like, oh, burnout and compassion fatigue kind of sound like the same thing, but you said they're not. So, what is the difference between burning out and then, actually having compassion fatigue.
1: So burnout stems from your interactions with the work environment and anyone who has ever worked can experience burnout. So I always like to think of like Dilbert cartoons or The Office, like, you know, the meetings, long hours, low pay, you know, annoying coworkers, being on a project that is Boring and a bad match for your skills. All of those things are things that people who work experience It's job stress and over time Depending on you know different factors if that's ongoing It can lead to burnout where you feel really depleted and powerless and it's um, can be debilitating debilitating depending on how far on the spectrum you wind up going The important thing to understand is that if you change your relationship with the work environment, it just tends to resolve. So that could be that you need to go part time or you need to be moved to a different department or take on a new project or you need to go to a different company that has better working conditions and then your burnout typically will resolve. But compassion fatigue stems from your interaction with these clients, the the people or animals in your care, and that it's much more specific to helping professions. So everybody can experience job stress and workplace stressors that can lead to burnout, but it's really helping professionals that are experiencing this empathetic relationship with suffering or traumatized animals and people, and that is what leads to compassion fatigue and so, compassion fatigue you can be in the best work environment, paid a lot of money, great co workers like it's really ideal. And if you continue to work with animals who are suffering, you can still experience compassion fatigue. So, you might leave and go to a better organization, and then you're surprised to find that you're still struggling. It's compassion fatigue and not burnout. I will say that almost everyone I know has a little bit of overlap because many of these work environments are not ideal so animal shelters you're perpetually understaffed right like or if you're a if you're a dog trainer and you're self-employed being uh you know a solo business person it's very stressful and overwhelming you're wearing a lot of different hats veterinarians obviously we're talking about the burden of trying to run a business and so it's important to know that they are different because you resolve them differently but there is a lot of overlap Happening in probably all of our lives.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, where were you two years ago when I started this journey working with trying to move, switch careers, and go to, to work with dogs? Because I would left my, I'm try, I've been trying to leave, and the pandemic is kind of helping me leave, but I was trying to leave my original career because I was burned out. But no one ever told me, hey, you might actually get compassion fatigue from working with dogs. So now I have that on top of the burnout, which I don't even think I really left the burnout because then I started trying, you know, I wanted to open up my own facility. And so all that work to get that going and all the failures was there too. So like this, it's crazy. It's just like I left one burnout to go to another problem another emotional problem. And I'm just really messed up now, I think, because of of both worlds. And I just wish I would have you know, known even had a glimpse of, hey, this might happen to you. Like, no, like you don't find that online anywhere that says, hey, when you work with animals, you might have compassion fatigue, you know, like, like, it's just another mind thing that's going to mess you up that you need to be prepared for. So if we do get p- compassion fatigue, what are some things we can do? I mean, can we ever cure it to a point? Is it just like you said, you just have to you know, kind of like with, I I don't know, I'm not going to be a psychologist, but do you have to fill that cup up that you have to make sure that you're, that you go back to doing things that you love that isn't destroying you mentally, which maybe that's not a great way to explain it, but it feels like it. Um, So what can we do to try to, if we, if we're having what you, uh, compassion fatigue, what can we do to try to make to, to go in the other, to balance, to make the balance the other way.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good, I use the term balance a lot because of that. We're looking to essentially counterbalance the intensity of the work with being deeply resourced human beings. So, you know, the first bit of this is really, um, the first strategy is awareness building. So this, what we're doing right now, but more, even more importantly, really self-awareness, knowing yourself, knowing how compassion fatigue shows up for you. What are your symptoms? But also really getting to know yourself. What are my thought patterns, my beliefs? What are my kind of, um, am I able to feel my feelings? You know, this, am I in touch with what's going on internally? Um, Being aware of yourself is a really important part. And it's very difficult to change anything until you have cultivated that awareness of how the work is impacting you and kind of how you move through life. And so what you just talked about, I think the interesting thing is people hear about this when they're ready to hear about it. So like, I've been doing this work for all of these years. I've written a million things. I have published articles, like it was out there if you were Googling it, but my, my, what my experience personally and professionally is that you can't hear it. You can't see it in yourself until you're ready. So this is like, you know, going back to addiction or something like that. It's you can see clearly that someone has a problem with drugs or alcohol, but until they are ready to, you know, admit it to themselves, it it doesn't really they can read all of the stuff out there about Addiction, and it's just going to go, eh, that has nothing to do with me. Others, other people are worse than I am. This has nothing to do with me. And that's what I see a lot in like young people who are new to the industry or even people who are just who are older but coming to it at first. There's a real passion and zealotry that comes with working with animals for the first time, where you're so psyched that you're doing this work and that you're learning about it that you cannot hear. Any opinions or outside information, you're kind of like evangelical at that stage. And so I have talked to younger people about compassion fatigue and they just almost without exception believe that it won't happen to them because they really care about animals and they're really tough or whatever it is. And so unfortunately, what I have found is most of us have to experience it before we are open to the idea that it could happen to us and that maybe we need um, to invest in ourselves, uh, we're not immune to it. So if it makes you feel any better, it may have been that even a couple of years ago, if we had had this conversation, you might've been like, oh, I'm good, I'm good. I really, I love what I do. I'm really passionate about it. I can't imagine feeling that way. I'm all right.
0: <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're totally right. Cause you know, i you know, little naive me was like, Oh, we're you know, get to volunteer. It, it can't be that bad. I'm pretty tough. You know, I've had, you know, addictive stuff in my, fa- you know, my family that I've had to deal with growing up. I, I I'm, I'm hard shell, but when you, I mean, especially the volunteering part in that kind of shelter, that really, it does take a toll on you because you just, you can't, you can't help every dog, you know, you see them come in the dogs that are, um, you know, are, are overbred or the dog, you know, like the, the, the pit bull we adopted, she was the perfect candidate for an SP, uh, SP, uh, the SPCA commercial where she's in the corner of the kennel shaking really small. She's supposed to be this big, tough dog. And she is in the corner, shaking, scared, terrified of life. And that got me, you know, to, to, to adopt her. Obviously that was, that pulled my strings really well for that. But you know, like when you see that day after day, or just even once a week or twice a week, you know, that really takes a toll on you. And nobody, even in our volunteer orientation, and even at the couple other places I've done or uh, volunteered at, you know, nobody talks about it. Nobody says, Hey, you, you know, everyone's like, you have to volunteer. We need people to come volunteer. We, you know, there's not enough people that volunteer. And so there's kind of like pressuring you to come in. And then when you don't, you know, you're like, uh, you know, but it's hard, but Nobody would believe like, no, I'm good. I love animals. I can deal with whatever I see. It's totally ok. But in it, then, like I said before, I think people are scared, you know, to to to, to even admit that they that they can't do it because they came in with such a bravado, if that's even the right word, I feel old saying that word. But um, you know, like that and th- th- that it's hard to admit hey, i I'm struggling. It's really tough,
1: and we won't admit it until we're in really bad shape that's the other part so it's like by the time we admit it we're in, we're not well so and the time to admit it would be way way earlier on when it would be much easier just like any behavioral intervention with a dog right like you want to get in there as soon as you start to see the behavior so you can it's easier to modify it we wait until we are so physically and mentally unwell that it often we have to leave in order to get well and if we could talk about it sooner we would suffer less, but also retain more people. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm Yeah. And I 100%. think, you know,
2: awareness is a huge thing in this industry as a whole. You know, we're just not, we're not self-aware. We're not aware of the bigger picture necessarily, you know, in, in not only compassion fatigue, but the industry just as a whole. And, you know, it, again, it goes back to, we only are going to hear what we want to hear when we want to hear it. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because two of my colleagues, you know, one of them, is uh, she went into the hospital for compassion fatigue, uh, you know, an actual physical health issue because of it. Um, And, you know, our whole team was like, we all got to slow down, you know, and everybody, you know, towards me, especially because, you know, not only do I work for one company, I I own my own business. And, you know, I have dogs 24 seven, and I have to literally schedule breaks to just have my two dogs in my home. And if I don't do that, you know, I'm, not only going to burn out, but I'm also, you know, at a high, high risk of compassion fatigue. So, you know, people are just constantly, you know, slow down, slow down, slow down. So it's, it's just, it's helpful to be self-aware and to really, you know, reach out for those resources. I mean, I started seeing a therapist once business started picking up, I was like, I can't do this on my own, you know? And she's like, I'm going to pick two days out of a week and, you know, or two days out of the month. And you're going to make sure that you block those two days out and you are not taking board and train clients. I'm like, deal. I can do that. That sounds great, actually.
1: I'm so glad to hear that. That makes me really happy. Honestly, some of the healthiest, happiest people I know in any animal profession have a great therapist in their corner. And I'm really um, asking people to talk about that more because it, there's such a stigma around mental health and therapy. And the, I know because people are confiding in me how they're going to therapy and it's what is allowing them to keep doing this work and to be healthy and happy. And I wish that publicly we were just saying it like, yeah, I went to the doctor because I had you know, a broken leg. And I also go to my therapist because my heart gets broken a lot and I need some help there. And if we were talking about that a little bit more, um, I think it, I know that there are people who are really struggling with the idea of even allowing themselves to go see a therapist because of the stigma. So thank you for sharing that. And there's I see a therapist. I, it's just really important that we talk about that. Like, it's I went to the dentist this morning. I, I really did, and like I will go see my therapist next week. Like, I also have to get my car serviced. I'm going to the vet. Like, these are all the appointments, and therapy is one of them. And what I would say is, you know, what the nice thing is about that appointment is that it's just time that is blocked off for you, and it's in the schedule. You know, it's there. You know, it's coming, and there is um, there is a real benefit to knowing that you have a place that you regularly go to where you can share your stories. So that in the week that you're not going to therapy, there's a part of you that knows that you will have a place to process whatever you experienced today. And that's really, that's really important to know exactly when that's going to happen for you. That provides a lot of uh, relief and support. So even if you're not going that often, knowing you're going makes a difference. And so the way that we could bring that in outside of therapy is if we were meeting with a peer or a coworker or a supervisor to debrief, you know, like once a week to be talking in a more reflective way about the animals that are really sticking with us. And when we know, okay, each week I'm going to meet with my team or my supervisor, and I know I'll get to process some of what I'm carrying around, that makes the processing itself is really helpful, but it's also the knowing that it is coming that really makes a difference and so I would really love to see more of us scheduling those kind of you know downloads with a friend or a therapist or who or your supervisor uh, on a regular basis. It's the regularity that
2: also really helps, uh, and so I'm thrilled
1: that you have that for yourself
2: and so that you know that brings up a good point that you know now that I'm thinking about it. Now that I have employees on staff, you know, really getting together and, and thankfully, you know, one of my employees is, well, two of my employees are really good friends of mine. So we kind of meet up off of work hours and we're like, we're going to take, you know, an hour to, to talk about things. And then the rest of the night is not to business talk. So, you know, that's nice. But, you know, thinking about my other staff who I'm not necessarily close friends with, you know, maybe, you know, a... a one hour before dogs come in or whatever, we we just chat about, you know, things we need to work on within ourselves and work on with the dogs and how we can do that effectively so that we're not, you know, experiencing that compassion fatigue as much.
1: Yeah, a really nice way to structure it is just to ask about, like, what's the dog or cat or whatever animal you're working with that has been sticking with you when you go home at night? So, like, who are you taking home with you? Um, And, you know, what, what happened this past week? Uh, You kind of focus on one, maybe one case or one animal that's really sticking with you. And then just to let everybody have like 10 or 15 minutes, depending on how many people there are, to just walk through it. What happened? How did you feel when that happened? You know, what, um, what did you learn from it? What would you like to have done differently Um, What are you grateful for around that particular case? Um, What kind of support do you need? Or how are you coping with it? And like, that's the debriefing of that case. That's not about the necessarily the specifics of like, oh, I should have done this protocol or this treatment, but really about what it feels like to be carrying it around. And it's that Again, that structure of, oh, we debrief once a week as a group. And I know I'm having a tough day, but I know that in two days we're going to get together and I'm going to be able to talk about this dog that's really weighing on my heart when I go home um, can be really helpful. And there, I have um, a blog about this that I can send you, Allie, that has some of these questions written out about how to structure this. And it's really important. It's not about anybody helping or fixing anybody. It's not, oh, you should have done this or don't worry. You're great. You know, you're you're wonderful. Don't worry about it. It's not about trying to fix the other person. It's really literally just making the space for that person to walk through their emotions around it um, and that time. So we don't have to feel like we need special therapy skills in order to run a debrief. We can just bring them through these structured questions to let them process it. And it can be massively helpful. And the research shows that it is. Um, So I'd be happy to share that. Um, And you can share that link with people if it's of use.
2: Yeah, I would absolutely appreciate that. Um, Could you do that as an individual as well? You know, yeah, you if you can. if you have these materials and you want to journal about it, and you 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 know, you get together with a dog friend every once in a while, and you know, you can pull out of your journal entries and just say, "Hey, this is you know, still still bothering me months <laughs> later." I know I haven't seen you in months, but can we just quick chat about this? And so, yeah, yeah. even as a, a self reflecting, self awareness kind of thing, you know, can you, you know. Yeah. That I, as just an individual. I mean, a lot of
1: people don't have anybody to talk to you about this, like it's not going to be safe for them. So your journal is your best friend. You can walk yourself through those questions. I actually recommend it as a way to close out the day. So like as a transition from work to home to help your brain, you know, shift out of obsessively focusing on the animals and to be able to shift a little bit into like your personal life. Can you take five or 10 minutes to with the same questions every day to kind of walk through you know what you know what happened today how am i feeling about it what went well what do i need to let go of before i go home what am i going to do when i go home you know to help me cope and that um, walking through that with a journal or even a voice recorder if you're not someone who wants to write you know use an app on your phone and talk it out that way but again it's that regularity of doing it even in your journal the be- a lot of these tools are so easy we just don't do them, a, which is why they don't work because we don't it's hard to do them, but they're easy strategies but it's also uh, deceptive in that it's the repetitiveness of them having a ritual even as simple as um, you know washing your hands or changing your clothes or putting on a certain song when you get in the car, anything to help signal like a cue to your brain that it's time to shift gears. That one little thing may seem like it's not a big deal, but if you do it every single day with the intention of letting go of work. Over time, that becomes a powerful cue to change how you're feeling uh, at the end of your shift. So I wish more people believed in uh, that some of these simple things done many times would help them uh, because they really do. But unfortunately, we either don't try them or we only do them four times, <laughs> and then we think, "Well, I took four deep breaths, and it didn't solve all of my problems." So you know, deep breathing is a joke. <laughs>
2: so we well, and that kind of goes into, you know, behavior modification. People think, okay, yep, it's just going to be this quick fix. And, you know, if you don't do it and you don't make a routine out of it, it's not going to become a routine. You know, it, it can be very simple, easy changes that we can make, but if you don't do it and start building a routine around it, you're not going to continue to do it. Yeah. it's rehearsing um, the And then I had a, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, on that point, what would you suggest so say you know for my my specific case which i'm sure i'm not the only person in the world that deals with this um i i run a board and train and dogs come home with me at night so basically until everybody is quiet at night i don't shut down and then by that time it's okay i'm in bed and Some nights I'm really lucky and I'm so exhausted that I just pass out. Other nights I'm laying in bed trying to wind down and, you know, I don't generally get in bed till 10, 30, 11 after I'm rotating all the dogs. And it's like, all right, so now 11 o'clock, my brain starts to shut down and shut down. And, um, but you know, speaking of that with like an owner that has a dog that they're struggling with, you know, that potentially is, kind of having the the overstimulated till two in the morning um, and owners, you know, they have to go to work the next day or, you know, tend to their children really early in the morning or, or whatever it is, you know, they're experiencing compassion fatigue as well. You know, they've got this dog that they're struggling with. So what would you recommend as far as, you know, kind of their ability to shut down yeah. at strange times when they can't necessarily?
1: So, I mean, the transition ritual may not work as well if you have no separation from work and home, but then we can look to compassion fatigue for um, family caregivers as our example. So think of anybody that is living with um an elderly relative or a child with behavior or physical needs or someone with Alzheimer's, whatever it is, where you are the primary caregiver and that human is living at home with you. So there is no escape, you know, from that for most of these people. It's a 24-hour experience and they can't quit their jobs and get a break that way. And so what we know from caregiver fatigue or stress that they're experiencing is it has to be about bringing resources in. So, you know, who can come in to help you? How do you get a break? So, you know, for many years I worked with really reactive dogs and dogs that have a lot of fear and aggression and finding that one dog walker that can, is skillful enough to help you so that you can go out for dinner, that you or you can take a couple of hours and go see a friend, rather than feeling trapped in your house all of the time, where you can't have anybody over and you can't leave them alone, you know, whatever it is, we need to bring somebody in. So, um, you know, for you, or for someone that's working at home all the time, it's, you know, how do you bring in some help into your own home, you know, so that you are able to have a little bit more time at night for yourself. And this is, that question. And I know it's hard business wise, you know, financially to figure this out, logistically speaking, but, you know, how sustainable is it to work this many hours and go to bed exhausted every night at 11 o'clock, like at a certain point, your body's just going to tell you, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I want, so finding ways to bring in a part-time person to help you out or to have a family caregiver or a dog walker, whatever the scenario is, someone coming in to give you regular breaks is going to be, it's going to fill your cup, so to speak. It's going to take some pressure off. And so anybody that's living with a dog with really serious behavior issues or separation anxiety, whatever it is, or medical stuff, you know, it's, um, it can take time I think to find a professional that you can trust, but having that pet sitter or the vet tech or someone that can um, help you out relieves so much pressure because the stress is overwhelming when you feel like you are literally the only one that can handle your animal uh, and that you, you almost feel trapped with them. And so we have to figure out some other kind of support
0: to bring in. It's interesting you bring that up. Cause that some of my clients have been like that, whether it's overnights or even just dog walking, you know, it, They're like, wow, you are like, wow, you're a savior to me. Like I can actually go out because you can handle, you know, the dogs are always, you know, quote, quote, problem dogs, you know, where, you know, like nobody else can deal with it or whatever the deal is, Um, you know, but what you talked about with therapy and I know you guys, you and Allie talked for a while, so I didn't want to interrupt the, the good, the good conversation, but you know. I go to therapy and I know I'm a guy and I go to, and I've gone and I was always against therapy until years ago when I went, had to go for, for a reason. Um, And then I had to go, I stopped. And then I went back again, but you bring up, it it is, when you find the person that you can talk to, that is somebody who, whether they're judging you or not in their head, they're not saying it out loud. So it makes it feel a little better. Cause I mean, you, you never know what a therapist is thinking when you're talking to them about stuff, but you know, it does, it feels great to just talk to somebody who isn't related to you, who isn't, doesn't know anything about you. And I think, you know, that's where I, I caution talking to people that I know is that I don't know if I want them to know what I'm thinking, but when it's someone who's like a therapist, like they don't know me and they're not my friend, so I can say what I want. They have to keep it quiet for the most part, you know, and, you know, and so there is something to that. And also you brought up writing things out like in a journal. What helps me sometimes with, I have probably like Allie, I have a hundred million things going on in my head of what I have to do during the day and what I have. And, you know, someone told that to me and I was like, oh, that's stupid. You shouldn't write what you have to do during the day and then and then do a, do a cross off. But it actually helps when I get into that mindset because, like, your mind just goes crazy. You might only have, like, three things to do, but you're, just because you keep replaying it in your head all day, it feels like I have such a massive weight. But when you can actually cross things off, it makes you feel so much better. And, I mean, I'm the biggest person that's so anti-everything everybody says for self-help and don't do, like, I'm just like, oh, you're, you're crazy. You're stupid. But that's one thing. Besides breathing, I've learned the breathing part too, but just crossing things off on a, whether it's on my notes or something like that on my phone, it feels great just to you know cross it off. You're like, okay, that's done. I don't have to think about it anymore. So if people want to reach out to you to get help or need or need help trying to even investigate compassion fatigue, where can they go and what can they do?
1: Sure. So my website is jessicadolce.com and there's tons of resources, uh, just webinars and podcasts that you can listen to that I've been on and lists of symptoms and signs. So you can do all kinds of research on your own uh, if you go to the resource section of my website. And then I have a free Facebook group, the Compassionate Badassery Collective, uh, which is all people for the most part who work or volunteer with animals. And that's a really nice supportive group. And then, you know, I work with individuals and organizations and you can learn all about that on my website.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for being here. I know I learned a lot and got a little more info about what this is. And I think a lot of people that I know are going through it. I'm sure me and Allie are kind of going through it here and there a little bit with, especially Allie. I mean, I've, Allie's talked to me about things. So <laughs> like, I don't know how she does the four dogs or however many dogs you have at one time, but like you are, you, I'm going to give you a big thumbs up for that. Cause I don't know how you deal with that. And and not go crazy and you're still sane and you still talk to me and you're still nice to me and you're you know you don't go off on me and it's it it's it's crazy that you can deal with it as 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 best as you do.
2: Lots of uh self-care people we'll say <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> and my therapist is wonderful, and I wish I would have seen a therapist many, many, many years ago, but you know, mental health wasn't talked about. And you know, right. for anybody yeah. listening, if if you think you need a therapist, get one. There is nothing wrong with speaking about your mental health, getting help with your mental health. It's awesome.
0: (laughs) It really is a changer. It really helps. And I was always anti, like I have to be strong and it was took a lot for me to go and still go again when I went again. And, but you know, when you find the right person, it's fantastic. It really helps you just be able to just say what you want.
1: Yeah, definitely. Agreed. Three and,
2: votes for mental health help. <laughs> especially in this industry. Right.
1: Especially in this industry, right? Well, we'll be better for ourselves and we'll be better for everyone around us and the animals. So think of therapy as both self-care and community care. We'll just be better to each other when we are well and cared for by a good therapist.
0: Right. <laughs> Thanks to Jessica Dolce for joining us. We hope you learned a lot about compassion fatigue and some ways to help you out if you're affected by it. If you are enjoying what you're hearing and haven't yet, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And also, please share our podcast on social media. You can also join our Facebook group at Who's Training Who to chat about this topic or anything really about animals. You can also share funny or cool things dealing with dogs. If you have a topic or an Ask a Trainer question, please comment in our Facebook group or email info at waggytails.pet. Thanks for listening to Who's Training Who.